fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings to you all from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. So glad you could join me today as I discuss music in all its nerdiness with the man behind so many amazing-sounding records, Oz Fritz. I spoke with Oz over the phone from his home in California, where he lives and has worked for quite a few years. I started becoming aware of Oz back in the late 90s when I was getting into albums like Tom Waits' Mule Variations and John Hammond's Wicked Grin. Those are actually two of my favorite-sounding records. They're roomy, huge, deep grooves, killer songs, and really unusual space and mojo in all the sounds on the album. It's not an easy thing to accomplish, so when the same guy's name shows up on a bunch of records that hit home with me, I take notice. And that's where I started to see the name Oz Fritz. Oz has done a lot of work at Prairie Sun Studios just north of San Francisco, and I wanted to talk to him about working in that room and how he approaches his work, no matter where he is. And Oz was um, rightly reticent to share specifics about his work with Tom Waits. Apparently, Mr. Waits like, likes to keep his recording techniques a secret. So we didn't, uh, I didn't push that, of course. So we skirted around that a little, but um, we did manage to talk about it a little bit. Um, but we did talk about the Wicked Grin album, which I love. And I've also talked to both John Hammond and um, Stephen Hodges on pre in previous episodes about that album. So it was fun to get Oz's um, take on it as well. It is a cool album and well worth listening to. There's a whole other chapter of Oz's career that I became aware of a little later as I dug into his career more. And most of it involves work with the producer Bill Laswell. And together they made some really tremendous albums for artists like Bernie Worrell, Sonny Sherrick, Ginger Baker, Buddy Miles, The Ramones, Iggy Pop, the master musicians of Jujuka, and many, many more. I, I love having engineers on the show, and um, you know, there's a lot to be learned from talking to people like this, and um, I wanted to find out what makes them tick and pick up some details about the albums that we never would know otherwise. I learned a lot from talking to him, and, and I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Thanks to you all for tuning in and listening and making comments and keeping in touch. I do greatly appreciate it. You can head over to the website at www.stevedawson.ca and there's a podcast page there and that's where you will find all the Music Makers and Soul Shakers episodes. And uh, if you feel inclined to make a donation of any sort, you can also do that there as well. You can go to almost any episode and hit the donate button and uh, kick in a donation. It's the only way that we have of keeping this show going. So I greatly appreciate it. 
Um, you can also find out about some upcoming tour dates that I have. Um, I'm doing some solo shows and some band shows, and I'll be up mostly in Canada, so please check those out. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And uh, yeah, I'd like to now take you to my conversation with Oz Fritz. So thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Do you live close to Prairie Sun? Like, what's your exact situation? Are you... I live in the uh, Grass Valley, Nevada city area. It's about a uh, two and a half, three hour drive from Prairie Sun. Uh, Prairie, oh, okay. Sun's, uh, Prairie Sun's near the coast and I'm uh, in the foothills of the Sierras, um, close to the Nevada border. Uh, so how much time do you spend at, at the studio there? Um, I used to be there about 50% of, of the time. And um, about three years ago, uh, a local place um, was actually, they said they built it for me. Um, uh, so I work there a lot now, so I don't have to travel as much because, um, when I work at Prairie Sun, I have to stay over. So it's right. basically being on the road. So yeah, right. as I, as I get older, I'm kind of trying to spend more time at home. Yeah, I can understand that. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's, and what's the place called that's near your house? That's called Ancient Wave. Okay. And, and you've been making records there for how long as well? About the last three years on and off. I don't work there exclusively. Yeah, Prairie Sun, I've always wanted to see that place. Um, um, some friends of mine are there right now recording with Bruce Colburn. So, Right. Um, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm seeing some photos and things like that. I've always wanted to see those rooms. But uh, yeah, I'm, um, I, I'm curious to know a bit about your early history because it's kind of hard to find out much about you. Are you Canadian? Just let me back up one second, then I'll answer that question. Okay. Um, you, say, you said you were interested to see the rooms at Prairie Sun, and I'll tell you, I mean, it's cool to be there and to be in them, but um, they don't look that great. What's the you know incredible thing about them is their sound. They're pretty unique. Uh -huh. And uh, one way that you can hear the sound of what they call the Waits Room is there's a track on Tom's Tom Waits' um, uh, Bone Machine album called Jesus Gonna Be Here. Yeah, that I love is, that song. Yeah, and if you listen to it, it's all a room sound. Like, there isn't a close mic on it. It's just two mics up in the corners of the room. So there's a place where you can actually hear that room. Is it just one big room, or are there a bunch of little studios there as well? No, in the this is the the um, where we recorded Mule Variations and also Wicked Grin, um, and in that space there's two rooms. There's like a really uh, large room, 
and that's not the room on uh, Jesus is going to be here. And then there's a smaller room that's um, an, an incredible, it's like the best small room sound I know of, I think. Really? It's, uh, yeah, it's not that big of a room, but it's got a stone floor and it's got um, uh, cedar paneling on the walls and it's pretty high. So you, you get this incredible sound. It's, they call it the weights room, uh, <laughs> although they can't market under that because... Um, right. Yeah, um, but they call it that because Tom Waits actually discovered that room. Uh, it wasn't a recording area. It was just because Prairie Sun is basically a converted chicken ranch. It, they used to oh. raise chickens there. Yeah. Okay. And it, so it's basically a farm and all the studios are, are like outbuildings on this farm. Okay. And so uh, there was a, a place where they used to just like store corn and store, you know, farm stuff or whatever. And um Tom was really um, not happy with the sound of the regular studio, Studio B. Uh-huh. It sounded okay. It's a good sounding room, but it's kind of generic sounding. There's nothing really unique or special about it. So one day they were just walking by this storage area, and he said, well, let's clear out this room and see how it sounds. And, and it was brilliant. You know, it sounds amazing. And so did they end up wiring that room into the main control room or something? Or how did that? Yes. When I worked on Mule Variations, um, like Prairie Sun is kind of situated on a small hill. So at uh-huh. the bottom of the hill was the recording area with these two rooms. And then up, up a little ways further, about halfway up, is Studio B. So they wired the um, downstairs part uh, to record uh, in, in the control room in Studio B. Further past Studio B is Studio A, which is a mix room. Okay. Um, but since... Um, you know, since Mule Variations, which, um, you know, got really good reviews and was acclaimed and whatnot for its sound, uh, Prairie Sun, you know, turned turned that bottom area into its own studio. So that's now Studio C. Okay. That's definitely the place to track if you're if you're working at that studio. Can you do a full band in there or is it mostly just like an overdubby sized room? No, no, the large room is enough for, you know, you could get, you could have like a small orchestra in there. It's a fairly oh, okay. large room. Yeah. Um, so the way that's sort of better for the drum room. So you can have like everyone in that large room and then um, baffle off amps outside of that room. And, you know, there's ways to isolate sounds. So what drew you to that place? Like, were you in the area or like what was happening that, that brought you there in the first place? Um, well, what got me there is basically Tom Waits. Um, okay. So I, I had started, um, when I became a recording engineer, when I made the transition from mixing live sound to, to being a recording engineer, I, I moved to New York and I, you know, grew up in the New York uh, studio system and I um, uh, was very fortunate to meet a producer named Bill Laswell and that was kind of the... Um, he became my mentor and my sort of leap into professional recording. And um, through, I mean, I met a lot of amazing musicians through Bill Laswell, but one of them was a drummer named Brain Mantia, who... um, From Primus. He was friends with a guy named Buckethead, and they did a record with Bill Laswell called Praxis. Right. Which was Brain, Buckethead, um, Bernie Worrell. Right.
Is this pre-Primus? Yeah, this is before he joined Primus. Okay. So, so at the time, um, so in 93, I moved out to California. And um, I'm not sure when Brain joined Primus, but he did. And Primus, um, uh, Tom and Les Claypool are friends. And so right. Primus played on Bone Machine, and so he met Brain. And anyway, it turned out Brain heard that um, Tom was looking for an engineer, and so he recommended me, and Tom called me up and um, suggested that we meet at Prairie Sun. And that was my first time I'd ever heard of Prairie Sun and the first time I went there. Oh, okay. And so what, I mean, I know you don't want to talk specifics with, with weights, but what would have drawn him to that room if, if you said he wasn't digging the sound of the room anyway? Like, why go there? Well, um, that story was around the time of his album Bone Machine, which was the first album he did at, at Prairie Sun. And um, so he wasn't interested. That's when they discovered the weights room, and so that made it okay to record there. He'd already resolved his issues with um, recording at Prairie Sun by the time, um, but by the time I came on board, and the reason that he, he liked that studio is because he had moved in the into the area. He had you know he was formerly living in L.A. and he'd moved up there. Oh, okay. And um, that was the you know closest best studio. Right, right. Is it is it mostly an analog room? Um, at the time, it was you know this was in '99, I believe, and it was totally analog. Okay. Uh, yeah, and now it's it's you know still trying to compete, so it's a mixture of um, analog and Pro Tools. Right. Um, so going back to what you were talking about with um, me, um, hooking up with Bill Laswell, can you tell me how that came about? Like, were you doing live gigs with him or something, or what was your initial um, meeting with him all about? Um, well, that's a very interesting story. Um, uh, part of my background is that I'm very interested in in uh, mysticism. And so I look at all kinds of connections and um, uh, synchronicities and coincidences and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it ter- turned out um, when I was doing live sound in Canada, um, I was with the sort of top local band and they, they were doing a demo and I went into the studio to see what the recording experience was like and I got so thoroughly turned off by it that I swore <laughs> I would never become a recording engineer. Can you tell um, me what, ba- what band it was? I'm Canadian, so maybe I know them. Oh, it was a band called The Tickets, um, and they were out of Calgary, Alberta. Oh, okay. I'm from Vancouver, so I I spent a lot of time in Calgary, but I don't know The Tickets. Yeah, this was in the early 80s. Okay. It turned out later that the producer-engineer was just racking up time, and and he was making (laughs) it painful on them to get more hours in. Um, and was it just like a a real slog of, like, overdubbing every part a million times and... Well, Just yeah, they of... spent, he spent um, 13 hours trying to get the basics for one song. Oh, my God. Yeah, and they would play the track, and, um, you know, and he'd, they'd come in, and, and uh, the producer would go, you know, great job, guys, it sounds really good, except on uh, measure 47, beat 3, the hi-hat <laughs> dipped in energy slightly, so I think we have to cut it all again. He was trying to earn his dough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it just became really tedious, and I had no idea. This guy 
he was the top guy in Alberta. He'd been down to L.A. and had supposedly worked with the Eagles and stuff. So I just assumed oh, yeah. that was how it was done. <coughs> um, but then it then. Um, and what were you doing there? What was your role in that situation? Well, I was just hanging out watching because I was their live sound man. Oh, okay. And so they ended up spending like um, over fifteen thousand dollars in the early '80s for five songs, and it didn't, it didn't sound anything like the band. Right. So the next time they recorded, it was just me in a club, you know, in off hours with a reel to reel. That probably sounded great. Yeah. It sound, well, it sounded much more like them, and they were a lot happier with it, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, but anyway, to get back to Bill Laswell, I came home from a show, from mixing a show, and I put on a new record I had um, called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, um, Brian Eno, David Byrne. Yeah. And um, the first track just blew me away. It was like, um, uh, it's like the same kind of experience I had the first time I heard the Beatles uh, number nine from White Album. Just right. a really spooky, haunting, you know, kind of music that just takes you out of where you're at. America is waiting for a message of some sort or another. turns out that Bill Laswell has a writing credit on that first song. So anyway, oh. after after I heard that record, I decided that um, recording was its own art form, that there were things you could do in a studio that you couldn't do live, and so I decided to give it another chance. Okay. Around that time, I visited New York for the first time. Um, before I moved to Canada, I moved there when I was 10, but I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. So I did a, a vacation, um, and this was encouraged by the lead singer of The Tickets, um, who suggested that I would really like New York. And so I, we had two weeks paid vacation. I spent the first week in Cleveland visiting my grandparents, and then I went to New York, where I was supposed to meet the lead singer and his girlfriend, and he had told me what hotel to check into and whatnot. And um, mm -hmm. so I got there to the Times Square Hotel, and I went to look him up, and he wasn't there. <laughs> and it turns out he had been stopped at the border for a uh, old pot possession. Sure, yeah, that'll that'll linger. Yeah, so I was there all in New York with on my own, and I just it just blew my mind. I just loved it. It was a completely magical place. So I decided to figure out a way to move there, some legitimate reason. And going to recording school was that reason. Oh, okay. And what school was that? Institute of Audio Research. How was that experience for you? Because, you know, people have had obviously very mixed um, experiences at, at recording school. Well, for me, it was a blast because it was in New York and it was like a kind of a year off. Right. And, you know, I had saved enough money so that I didn't have to um, work at an outside job. So I just went to classes. And in terms of uh, getting an education as a recording engineer, I wouldn't recommend, you know, that didn't give that to me. It right. didn't. It it didn't um, teach you how to work in a studio. It just it gave you a lot of theory, uh -huh. um, but I was just happy to be there. Sure, of course, yeah. And were you able to like you know? With, it sounds like the stuff that you were being drawn to, like Revolution Nine and and the Eno stuff. I mean, that's a lot of experimentation and tape manipulation yes. and things like that. Was that something you were getting into then, or were you not really given that luxury at the at the recording school? 
No, there, there, there was nothing like that at the recording school. And, and I wasn't even, um, I was too naive about the recording process to even know that involved a lot of experimentation. Um, okay. I didn't really know. I just know that this, it spooked me. It was like scary. It was like, you know, a dangerous almost listening right. to it, you know? Yeah. And I was very, I mean, I've always had an interest in philosophy and art and, you know, what is art for and how can you make the, you know, best expression of art and all that. And so I, I approached it from that point of view that, that um, making records could be an artistic expression. Okay. So after I went to school, I had a couple of maybe you can call them gap years where I went back to Canada to do live sound, tried to get into studios, but there wasn't, you know, in Calgary, there was only one studio and it wasn't, didn't have full-time staff. So I realized I had to um, basically camp out in a studio if I was going to learn how to work one. I, I um, Yeah, old school. Yeah, I did realize that. I did get offered uh, one uh, to get to do one record in Calgary, which went really well. But that's when I realized that I would have to, to get it into my bones. I would just have to do it every day for a long time. So um, what was the I, record you did there? Um, it was a Canadian group. Uh, well, they're called the Now Feeling. Uh -huh. Um and then they've, I don't know, you might have heard them, they've, they've, they, they now call themselves Lost and Profound. Oh, okay, yeah, I know and, the name. And they're out of Toronto now. And, and this is like mid-80s you're talking here, or? Yeah, this is around 1985 or so, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I decided I needed to be in a recording center, and, and um, my girlfriend and I at the time moved um, to New York, and, and uh, that's when I got doing the hunt to get an internship in a, in a studio, and I was lucky to get onto a place called Platinum Island. Um, and I was very lucky because it was not one of the established studios. Uh -huh. And so there was openings. Like in an established studio, you could be an intern for as long as 18 months. And um, at, at Platinum Island, because of my background with live sound and because it was a new um, studio, I was in the rooms as an assistant engineer within three months. Oh, cool. And and did you just like walk in there cold and just say, hey, I'm here and I want to work? No, I went to um, all the various studios in New York and um, you, you apply to be, become an intern. That's yeah. So you, you um, so I, you know, I heard they were hiring interns at Platinum Island and I got an interview and, and then they, you know, hired me in an internship. I mean, you probably know this, but they, um, you know, I got paid five dollars a day, and you just um, you don't even get into the rooms at all, except in the before a session to you know clean up, or after a session right. to clean up, clean the ashtrays. Right, and then your compensation is that you're allowed to read the equipment manuals. Okay, and so that's where you get your that's that's the real education, I guess. It's like being there at like two in the morning, going through the going through the 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 tape machine manuals and the weird delays and all that kind of stuff probably, right? No, I wouldn't say so. I would say the real education is when you actually get into the room. Because mm -hmm. um, I remember sitting as an intern, sitting in Prairie Sun in their smaller room and just being overwhelmed almost, like, how am I ever going to learn all this stuff? And this yeah. is after I'd been to school and all that. And it was just really... Um, you know, a little overwhelming. But then as soon as I got on, you know, as an assistant, I mean, because the engineers are wanting you to be good. And so it's just a matter of kind of following them, staying, you know, paying attention and keeping up with them. Yeah. And then yeah. and then you learn and then, you you know, they'll show you their techniques and, and you know, yeah. 
trial by fire. So did did you end up working with any producers or engineers at that um, uh, at that studio that were instrumental in your um, like the arc of of learning all the equipment? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you learn something from almost everyone. Um, the one of the first um, top guys I worked with was a guy named Tom Edmonds, who was producing a live meatloaf record. Oh, really? Yeah. And he had done his training with uh, Todd Rundgren up in Woodstock. Oh, wicked. Okay. So there's... Yeah. yeah. And I learned a lot from him, like every aspect, mixing, um, mic placement for drums, uh-huh. and even all kinds of little stuff. Like there was one day he was kind of... I mean, it is the music industry and it is a little bit cutthroat. So one day he told me, you know, Oz, you get a, you got to get your secretarial skills together or else you're going to get your fingers cut off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which meant you know labeling stuff and all that stuff so right so yeah you get in there and you know the the engineers show you and the producers show you the ropes um rick derringer was another early producer that i i learned from oh wow so he was in there um this is like what, what when he was a big rock star or was this like sort of after that when he was in the studio more yeah i think it was i think it was it was a little bit after he was a big rock star he wasn't playing with um johnny winter anymore Okay. Um, but he produced um, a record for the World Wrestling Foundation, believe it or not. Really? Uh, yeah, and they had, it was all good musicians. The back, the music was all really great, and then they got in all the wrestlers in to, do, to rap over it or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so I actually got to record uh, Hulk Hogan at the time. But that's how I ended up meeting Bill Laswell was at Pr- Platinum Island. Okay, so he came in to do a record there or something? Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know if you know Bill Laswell's um, career sure or anything. Yeah, at totally. That, yeah, because he was basically a record-producing factory. I mean, it was like nonstop. Yeah. Um, and um, he used to mix at the power station, uh, now called Avatar, but the power station at that time was the top New York studio. Right. Um, and it was also the most expensive. So he was looking for like an alternate to do his more um, low, lower budget free jazz stuff. Yeah. At that time, I was on the um, outs with the studio manager at Platinum Island and um, for nothing to do with work reasons, um, uh-huh. more like you could call it sexual politics. Okay. Um, and so even though I was like the senior assistant, I wasn't getting all the top gigs. But when Bill Laswell came in, the other, my friend, John, who was getting all the top gigs was already booked on something. So it, it fell to me by default. And and you obviously hit it off with, with Laswell pretty quickly because you've worked with him for years. Yes. So that was the, um, their policy at Platinum Island was to keep the same assistant on with the producer so they could develop a rapport. Okay. And, and uh, and that's what happened. We developed a rapport, and um, and then it turns out we have a lot of the same uh, interests in, in mysticism and the occult and stuff like that. And was he doing like remixing and stuff that he was involved in too, or was it like what kind of records was he doing at that time? It was he was it wasn't remixing, but it was just basically mixing. Um, the first two records I did with him were. Um, Again, low budget free jazz. One was um, a drummer named Ronald Chen and Jackson, uh-huh. and um, he he came out of sort of the Ornette Coleman uh, school. He used to play with Ornette, and then the other one was a Japanese um, jazz musician named Yosuke Yamashita. 
totally free, totally experimental, uh -huh. and, and I, it was an education watching Bill work because um, it was, an, you know, not only Bill but his engineer Robert Musso, um, who became also a mentor, an engineering mentor for me, and uh -huh. um, watching Bill mix, um, he basically, you know, he was approaching it as an artist. The you know the actual like he. This, the SSL, the mixing board, became a musical instrument for him because he would um, ride automation passes on all the instruments and basically create dynamics by uh -huh. and, and create an arrangement through how he automated it. Right. And was that something that the, the musicians were okay with? I guess, I guess if you work with Laswell, that's what you're going to get, right? I mean, it's not a, a straight-up um, performance piece. It's manipulated and and mixed in a way that, as you say, it's becomes part of the performance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess they were okay with it. I never um, got any feedback um, pro or con, but um, basically this was, you know, there was still a bit of um, the old skill produ producing type yeah. of approach, which is that the artists were not involved in the mixing. Right, you know, right. Uh, you know, like we, you know, later on I assisted... Um, Jason Corsero, Bill's mix engineer, for um, we mixed an album for the Ramones called Brain Drain. It was uh -huh. actually Jason Corsero and Robert Musso um, trading off on it. And the Ramones themselves were never, they were not allowed in the studio while really? we were mixing. Yeah, and they were, they were brought in afterwards to, to yeah. play, you know, and then they could give comments and stuff and, and input, which they didn't really do, but... Um, and it was the same with Iggy Pop. I mean, um, Iggy Pop was never there while we were working, um, but he would bring in Iggy to listen to it. And, and there was a song where Iggy wasn't cool with the mix um, that they ended up, um, you know, remixing uh, while he was there. Who, who was the engineer on, on those sessions? It was, again, a team of um, Jason Corsero and, and Robert Musso. Okay, and you were assisting? Uh, I was assisting Robert Musso. This was the point where um, the Iggy Pop Instinct record was where when Bill um, was making the transition to Platinum Island. So what he did is he had Jason Corsero, who's a, an amazing uh, power station engineer, mix half the album at Power Station, and I did not assist on that. And then um, Robert Musso mixed the other half at, at Platinum Island, which I assisted okay. on. And you, do you mean like half the songs or like they would do certain aspects of the whole album at, at one studio and then move to the No, they each had their own songs. So they split oh, okay. it. Yeah. And so you got to see that whole process. And, and uh, you know, what, what was, if, if, they, if the artist came in and, and didn't like something, was it kind of like start from scratch, go back to square one, or was or would they work with the artist, or was the artist basically just not really welcome there? No, the artist was welcome, but again, you know, I mean, back in the old days, the artist just did whatever the producer told them to do, and so it was a little bit more like that. And, uh -huh. and um, but I mean, Iggy, you know, I I know he was very involved because he was getting uh, cassettes 
of the mixes every night. Okay. And, um, you know, and, and like I said, there was a track that, um, that he needed remixing on. But I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, at the end of it, when it was all mixed, um, we had a playback for Iggy with all the songs um, in the sequence that they would be in, but before it was mastered. So he yeah. was going to hear all the mixes, and then if it was approved, we were, we were going to master it the next day. Yeah. So we get to the end of the playback, and, you know, it sounds really amazing and stuff. And uh, Iggy's like, you know, I, re I really like it. It's great. Um, but the first song, uh, just, I think it gets boring. I think my singing gets boring. And I'm not sure about it. And it was a song called um, Cold Metal, which is the best song on the record. Yeah. And so, well, you know, so he's kind of trying to decide whether we should master the next day or not. And, and Bill's like, you know, Iggy, it's, you know, I think it's great. Whatever you want to do, it's up to you. It's your record. We're supposed to master it tomorrow, but we can postpone that. And Bob Musso chimes in with, you know, well, there was a young girl in here the other day and she really liked it. And. And Iggy's just going, I don't know, I don't know. And finally, I spoke up because I had a, I had a very uh, strong connection with that song because the lyrics of that song almost uh, seem like they could have been uh, sung from the point of view of where I lived in my apartment. Okay. So as as an assistant engineer, I spoke up out of turn, and I just told them, "Look, man, those lyrics are so intense. It doesn't matter how you sing it." <laughs> that's a, that's a bold move. In, in, in yeah, and and that's what changed his mind. He said, "Okay, let's put it out." <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, wicked! That's True so story. Cool. And that song, Cold Metal, was the only song that ever, you know, got onto a Miami Vice episode and it got onto right. his greatest hits uh, package. So you were right. Yeah. <laughs> what was the transition for you to become the full-on engineer on projects? Uh, that was, again, Bill Laswell. I mean, he, he really believed in me and um, put me in situations I felt I wasn't quite ready for. But, uh -huh. you know, it was almost like... That's the best way to learn. Yeah. So it started out, I mean, I assisted for Bill. Um, there was a day on a, a um, he was producing a band called The Swans, where Robert Musso couldn't make it. And um, so, you know, that's what every assistant engineer is waiting for, is the chance to jump into the driver's seat. Totally. And um, so I did, and it went well, and, um, you know, and then Bill started um, just hiring me to record stuff. And, um, you know, both Bill and his sort of best friend, production partner at the time, Nikki Scopolitis, were impressed 
with how it, it went, how the way I worked and stuff. And um, around that time, um, this was after I'd been at Prairie Platinum Island for three years. Yeah. Um, Bill decided to, he, he went in a partnership with another musician named Jonas Helborg to open a studio up in Brooklyn. Okay. And, um, and basically, you know, that was like, that's when I went freelance. That's when I felt uh, confident enough to, you know, stop with a full-time job at Platinum Island and go freelance. And, right. And that's, yeah. And then did you end up working at Laswell's place mostly? Yeah. Because he's so, he's so prolific. He was probably hiring you all the time, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, most of the most of the stuff I did in the next three years was there. You guys did a Buddy Miles record around that time, right? I think we did two of them. Okay. Um, was that done at, at the Brooklyn studio? That was done at, at um, Bill's Greenpoint studio. So so you had all kinds of stuff. Like uh, I think there was a Pharaoh Saunders record in there too, right? Or was that uh, like at a different time? Pharaoh Saunders was a little bit later. Were you living in, in Brooklyn at that point to accommodate working there so often? No, both Bill and I lived in Manhattan, and, and he would pick me up on the way into the studio every morning. Okay. So you're there and, and making records, and what were you freelancing for a lot of other um, labels and producers and stuff like that as well at the time? Um, no, Bill pretty much kept me full-time. It was either really? stuff, yeah, stuff from Bill, or else I would still get work at, at, um, from older clients at Platinum Island. Uh-huh. But all the interesting music... You know, there was a minute there when I was working at um, Platinum Island where I started mixing stuff, and and I just hated the music I was doing because it was all dance music. Oh, really? And it was, you know, I mean, you're really excited to be able to start engineering, but after a while, I mean, you realize you kind of hate the music that you're working on. And um, I seriously considered, you know, getting out of it completely because I didn't want to end up working with music that I didn't like. And uh, Totally. You know, first I am at Bill, and um, I mean, he's still, you know, probably the top producer I've ever worked with, and the best music I, I still work with him. Um, you know, comes through him most yeah. of the time. What were at that period when when you moved to the studio in Brooklyn? What were a few of the highlights, record-wise, that that you worked on? That I mean, it must have been a huge relief to not be doing music that that you thought sucked. So, uh, what were some highlights of, of those few years? I, you know, there's so many of them, it's yeah, hard to say. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a band called Painkiller. Uh-huh. That was uh, Bill Laswell, John Zorn, and a drummer from Napalm Death called Mick Harris. Wicked. And, um, you know, they almost, almost um, invented a genre of music, if you want, you know, free jazz slash rock slash hardcore. Noise. Yeah. Um, you know, with elements of ambient and dub in there. Uh-huh. And that just started out as an experiment. You know, that was an experiment by John Zorn that became like a band for the next five or six years or whatever. Uh Um, But one thing I really remember, like I said, I'm into um, the sort of magical side of music, the mystical side. And um, Mick Harris, um, he does these, you know, he basically screams. 
as part of his vocalization or whatever. I mean, there's yeah. no singing; it's just screaming of these yeah. these nonsense uh, words or whatever. And um, right around the time that we did that, the very first time was right at the beginning of the first Gulf War. Okay. And I remember Mick Harris, one of his screams was, Scud, 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 Scud. He did this thing on Scud, which was like <laughs> just a nonsense word. Well, within a week, oh Scud missiles were everywhere in the, in the um, news, you know. That is crazy. Well, yeah. that's some synchronicity for you. Exactly. Was the the Buddy Miles record? Um, I really like that record. Helen Back, I think, is the one that I've yeah. got. Um, that uh, it's kind of dark and creepy, but super funky at the same time. Um, do you have any recollections from those sessions? Like, was it a full live band playing, or how did, how were you guys working back then? Um, it was. Uh, it's basically Bill's mo, or you know, and my mo too. It's just to record the basics as live as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and and then to add overdubs on top of that. So it was all um, done live, um, you know, for the most part. It was, uh, I think, Bootsy, Buddy, and um, Stevie Salas was a guitar player, I think. Oh, really? I oh, okay, I didn't know that. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of personality in a, in a room. Um... Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> the first time, I'm, Buddy Miles was just a total character. Yeah. Uh, lovable, but also um, high-maintenance. Yeah, and was he pretty, like, he must, he was probably pretty fucked up at that time, too, I bet. Well, I mean, he was there, you know, he showed up and he, he you know, played amazing. And when he sang, I don't, you know, his singing is just, he's one of the best singers I've ever worked with, for sure. And, and was he drumming and singing at the same time on that whole record? No, he no he um, when he sang it was an overdub. He, he didn't uh, drum and sing at the same time. Okay. Uh, and he also put some fuzz bass on that. I remember one time because that was um, he was doing an overdub with a fuzz bass, and then we got to the end of the song, and, and the bass just kept feeding back. Yeah. And it turned it turns out he had like nodded out. <laughs> he, <laughs> he made it to the end of the song, and then he nodded out. Perfect. So I'll tell you a classic story with him. Like, Buddy, first of all, the very first time I met him, he came uh, walking into Greenpoint with a Stratocaster um, with an American flag design on it that he said that Jimi Hendrix had given him. Uh-huh. And so um, Buddy, it seemed like he liked to party all night long. And so when he showed up in the, um, in the you know, noon for the sessions, he was a little bit trashed. <laughs> and tired and he used to start off by eating like a huge meal uh-huh. you know like um basically two chinese food entrees or something like that and so the assistant at the time would um make him a cup make him strong coffee and he would throw in a few um like no dose pills like caffeine pills yeah, you know sure keep them going so one day i think he put in maybe one or two too many of these pills because um buddy got extremely emotional Oh, and he started um, going off on this rap about how the music industry screwed up Jimi Hendrix by feeding him drugs and 
he was going on and on and he had, and we were recording this um you know and he's he broke down and he started crying like that's how emotional he got wow and um so bootsy collins gets up from where he's sitting playing the bass and he goes over to buddy and starts petting him on the back no buddy it's all right buddy it's okay and um yeah it was never a dull moment working with him yeah no doubt wow um so would those kinds of records have been done fairly quickly like i'm guessing a lot of the laswell stuff since it is very live and off the floor they're not records that you labor over for you know weeks and months at a time or are they no i don't think i've ever done a record with bill that took a really really long time um, no, they were done in, in like, you know, maybe a couple of weeks, something like that. Okay. And so what brought you to California eventually? Um, I, I guess you spent a good seven or eight years there working out of Brooklyn. And, and then what happened after that? Um, well, I, I sort of got into my sort of esoteric studies uh, and I got into an author named um, E.J. Gold. And... Um, uh, I started going to, you know, meetings out in New York and, and um, becoming involved there. Uh-huh. And um, I went out to one of their conventions out in California, and my wife fell in love with the place, and I wanted to move there right away, and I wasn't oh, really? interested. Yeah, I wasn't interested because I was having such a great time in New York. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, but then a few years later, um, we had to, we had to move out of our sublet. Uh, we had a really good sublet and, um, my wife just said, well, I'm moving to California. So I ended up moving out there, but, um, basically living half the time in New York. So I was bi-coastal for about five or six years. So you were still working there a lot with Laswell in in Brooklyn, but living sort of in, okay. And then did you did that lead to eventually finding work in California? Yeah, almost all of my work was going back to New York, and I think the um, the big break in California was when I got the uh, re- recommendation from Brain to work with Tom Waits. Yeah, yeah. And was that like, were you a Waits fan? Did you know much of his music at that point? No, I didn't really know his music at all. I, I had read a little bit about him, and I just knew him as this kind of scary underground character. <laughs> <laughs> so when yeah. when he called me up I totally lied to him and said I was a fan but really <laughs> yeah um so I when you came one when you when you work with an artist or any artist but like say in that situation does that make you go back and listen to their body of work and see where they're coming from or do you kind of like going in with a blank slate uh it's a little bit of both I do a little bit of research but I don't spend a lot of time on it I was very fortunate with Tom because um, Robert Musso, who I said he was my mentor with Bill Laswell, it turns out that uh, he had recorded Rain Dogs. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so um, in my interview with Tom, I I brought up his last record, Bone Machine, and he sort of didn't, he kind of indicated that he wasn't crazy about the sound of Bone Machine, but he, uh, yeah. He, which I mean, I don't know why it's it. I love it, the sound of that record. I think yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I might have been reading it wrong, but he he um, a re- he referred me to Rain Dogs. Yeah, and I happen to know the difference in recording between Rain Dogs and and uh, Bone Machine because they're basically the difference between recording on the East Coast and recording on the West Coast at that time, which is that on the East Coast, 
Um, the the standard was to record on tape at 30 ips, 30 uh, inches per second with no noise reduction. Whereas in California, the standard was to record at 15 ips using noise reduction, uh -huh. um, which means you can't um, use the tape uh, for tape compression. You can't like slam the tape with because it's slamming the noise reduction. Anyway, to me, to me, I I prefer the East Coast version of that because it sounds bigger. It's you know, it's like um, more pronounced, may... low end, and stuff like that as well. well. Yeah, there's there's more magnetic particles to capture the sound. It's a greater resolution. You know, you have right. twice as much twice as much tape. And so, was there discussion about you know that what what approach you would want to take for a record like that? Well, I told them I told them about my you know connection with Bob, and that I knew exactly how um, um, Bob did it. But there was no real technical discussion with Tom because he wasn't ever really interested in that. But he has he has an incredible ear; like he can tell the difference between a a Neve board and a Trident board. Um, but he doesn't; he couldn't tell you why, or you know, he can just um, spot the spot the difference. But yeah, yeah, like he could hear the difference between. Bone Machine and Rain Dogs without having any clue why they were different. Right, right. I've, I've talked on this show quite a bit about that Wicked Grin record, which I wanted to ask you about. Um, I, don't, I don't know if maybe you're a little more open to talking about that record or if that's uh, too connected to this world too. But I've been, me and my friends actually are like really fascinated with the sound of that record. And, uh -huh. I, and I've had Stephen Hodges on the show and I've made some records with him and we've talked about it before and, and I've had John on the show as well. And we talked about that record. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I've had, I've had some stories about it from both those sides and, and, but the, the one interesting thing that, that I remember in talking to Hodges about was that he, like he, I, I think generally everybody showed up at that session, not really knowing what they were going to do. Um, and the whole Tom Waits song uh, repertoire thing kind of came to the party late and Hodges basically just said they were kind of sitting around and, um, you know, not really having a full direction in mind. And then he worked on the sound with you and all of a sudden, like, there's this massive sound that you guys created. Now, I don't know if you just feel like from your end, if you just like set, set up this, uh, a few microphones in front of Hodges and he and it's him or what but he says it it was like all you right and and that that he had this reaction to that that kind of kicked off that whole record and the the first song on the record um 219 he said was really brought on by the sound that you generated uh, on on his kick drum Baby, leaving town on the... I said, hey, 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 hey
well, he's very kind and generous, <laughs> and I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but it's interesting to hear um, different people, you know, multi perspectives on a uh -huh. single single event. I happened to be um, just before we you called. I was listening to uh, John Hammond's your your interview with John Hammond, and he when he talked about um, uh, Wicked Grin. And I hadn't realized, I mean, he's remembering stuff that I couldn't quite remember. Uh -huh. um, but I didn't realize that the song choice came that late. I oh, thought really? they had already, yeah, I thought they had figured it out like a day or two before. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you my version of it, which is that um, I don't know why, but we ended up, um, the first sessions were at Sandy Perlman's studio in San Rafael. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know if Sandy Perlman is a guy who, who started Blue Oyster Cult. And he okay. also, he produced the second Clash album. And um, the studio had an amazing sound, but because it was a private studio, it was like really not well maintained at all. They had great gear. I had to bring in, um, I, I, I remember borrowing a couple of microphones from Les Claypool. Uh, they didn't have as many good mics as I'd liked. Yeah. And um, so I went in there and I just set up a lot of microphones and... Um, because the studio wasn't well maintained, it would it, it took forever to get set up. Like I got there at like eleven in the yeah. morning and um, was probably ready to record around six or seven at night, something like that. Okay, but so I you were was dicking around with wiring and cables and all that, probably. Yeah, troubleshooting. There was a guy right. there to help me, but it was like every single line had to be run down and figured out, and oh, it was just it. really tedious. But I was. I was fortunate because Tom had taken his family skiing in Lake Tahoe and he had gotten snowed in. Yeah. And so he was really late. Perfect. And um, so by the time he got there, which is like, I don't know, five or six in the afternoon, I'm still getting set up and it's still not quite ready. But the band, I mean, they've been sitting around this whole time and they're getting antsy and they just started playing together. And and um, I don't know why they started playing that song 219. It's the first song on the album, but they were playing that. And it just sounded amazing. And Tom said, you know, wherever you're at right now, hit play and record. Okay. And, uh, and that's what I did. And, and that basically became, you know, it was like the first take. And it became, you know, the first song on the record. They didn't um, do any other takes of it. Were you kind of flying by the seat of your pants then? Like you weren't really ready, but you were just going? Yeah, exactly. And everyone was in the same room and, yeah. and, you know, and to me, it was, to me, it's, it wasn't what I did. It was the chemistry. It was a total chemistry thing. Definitely. That, that, yeah. yeah. They just had it. I mean, just when they started playing and, um, you know, Steven and Larry had played together before, but um, not with John or um, Augie Myers, a keyboard player. Right. Uh, and then at some point, Tom Tom started playing a rhythm guitar on it also. Right. And and so everyone's in the same room there. Um, were you isolating stuff at all, or was it all just kind of like a big soup of sound with everybody bleeding into everybody else? Um, it was a, a soup of sound. Um, you know, like if you hear, if you happen to notice the piano sound on that record, it always has a lot of room on it. Because yep. it's back. Well, that's because everyone's in the same room. Now thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's house or cover thy neighbor's wife. 
But for some it's murder It's the only door they're walking in life Now they surrounded the house They took them off in chains and, and um, yeah, no, there was no way to really isolate anything. I think the um, uh, the the guitar amps I put into the control room. Okay. And to keep the bleed of that away. Well, it's a it's a fantastic sounding record. So I mean, thanks. If if, if it was the kick sound that that spurred on the the entire uh, um, inspiration for the band, then whatever it was that you fluked into, it was a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, just to to. Uh, counter Steven. I mean, it was his bass drum and it was his foot hitting the drum. All I did was put a microphone in front of it. It, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't a rocket science or anything, you know? <laughs> um, the mixing of it was fun too, because I got to do it on my own. I did half of it with Tom there and then he took off for vacation and I did the second half. And um, what he had told me to do is he had given me parameters, um, which is that after I got a song set up, I um like I I was only allowed to spend one hour mixing it. That was, you know, a time limit. Um and then once I got one mix of a song, he wanted me to do a second mix of the same song, but uh-huh. to make something noticeably different, like just try something completely different. So a lot of those alternates I just went completely experimental. So what kind of things would you be doing in that regard? I can't even remember. I don't know, like trying <laughs> reamping stuff or, um, you know, I actually don't remember exactly. I don't think a lot of those alternate ones were used. Um, yeah, Hodges mentioned that the whole record was mixed in 12 hours, and I didn't believe him, but but I guess that's basically true. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to mess with mythology, legend. <laughs> um, no, I would say it was mixed in, you know, like a normal, regular amount of time, like, um, I think it was still an hour, an hour per song is, um, yeah, remarkable. two days with Tom and then three days without Tom, something like that. And there was, there was 18 songs too, you know, cause we mixed all the outtakes. Okay. Um, and like, was the one hour time limit thing, was that put on as an artistic challenge or was it like a budget thing? Like just get it done really fast. No, it wasn't, it wasn't a budget thing. Um, it was, it was, it, it's, it's part of, um, you know what I'm not supposed to really talk about so right. much, but it, it's part of his MO. And, um, you know, you make someone do something so fast that they don't have time to think about something. Right. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Well, you'll have to listen to the Hodges one at some point because he's got some funny stories. He's got a really funny story about getting there to the session, too. Where okay. He, where he uh, crashed his car and but didn't tell oh, well. any, he didn't tell anyone because he didn't want it, he didn't want it to become like a big deal. <laughs> Yeah. And and you're right. I mean, so much of that crazy sound is him and his gear, but also yeah. I, I know there's more to it than that. And, and, uh, he definitely like appreciates and gives you credit for, for, um, the drum sound on that record, which I think is really remarkable. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as far as the, the Prairie Sun thing goes, um, and, and working there, um, how, how important is it to you as an engineer working in a, in a environment that you feel familiar in and you kind of know the rooms and the, the sounds and the quirks of the rooms. Like it sounds like Prairie Sun has some real quirky room things going on. Uh, is that a big part of what draws you to that place? I don't know. It's, that's a hard question to answer. I, uh, you just develop a relationship with a place and yeah. um, keep building on that relationship. Um, 
there are things I love about Prairie Sun, and then there are things uh, with my background as a New York professional that um, I see as being um, a bit on the amateur side, uh-huh. and and uh, that I'm critical of. Uh, you know, basically the reason you know what drew me there is because we developed uh, this, the owner Muka Renick and myself a symbiotic relationship where I would bring work to him and then he would um, call me for work and he would use, use my name to market his studio basically. Uh-huh. So um, it's not so much the technical side of it, but just, it was you know, a convenience. It's, 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 yeah. Okay. I'm curious about your, you know, we're, we've been talking about bands and, and um, ensembles and, and sort of, you know, having, lots of room mics and things like that with bands. I'm wondering about uh, on an acoustic record, like say that Raul Mallow record that you did, which also sounds amazing. Um, uh, do you have any um, different approaches that you take to recording acoustically for a project like that? No, I think the approach is the same. It's just um, trying to get as many options as possible um, for in the mix. So um so, in, for instance, if a um, a distorted vocal is called for, um, I'll, I'll run it through a parallel reamp, but I'll also um, record a uh, a clean vocal. So that I'm not locked into that reamp option, it can be changed later. Right. Um, so what I like to do, I like to have close mics on things, and then combine that with room mics, so uh-huh. that you know you can um, have control over the spatial dimension of it. Um, there was a guy uh, I don't even remember his name, um, but he was asked to get the same vocal sound as mule variations. So he took the group up to Prairie Sun and he recorded them, but he had them stand like three feet back from the microphones yeah. because he, he was trying to get that room sound. And and that's not what you do um, because all of a sudden he doesn't have the, um, he can't make the contrast between the foreground of a close vocal sound and the room sound and bring right. that in. So they they ended up having to they ended up having to scratch all the vocals and redo them all. Oh no! Um, and the way I would do it is is have a you know I used to have to tell Mike to tell Tom to get more on the mic, um, have a closed vocal mic, and then also have uh, room mics for the ambience. Yeah, and and just sort of come up with a balance that works of 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 both or whatever. Yeah. On that acoustic sessions record, it's pretty natural sounding though. But were you were you also running some more experimental tracks and some reamping kind of tracks on an, on a record like that? No, you, not on not on Raul's record. No, okay, that was pretty much a straight up record. Yeah, right, right. It seems like you haven't done a, a ton of acoustic recordings over the years, but that one kind of jumped out and and uh-huh. uh, and it's a beautiful sounding record. He's such yeah. a great. He's such an amazing singer too. That must have been a fun project to work on. It was. It was great. Yeah, it was my first time in Nashville. Oh, you did that here? And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. What what studio were you working at here? 
I don't know. You'd have to look at the album credit. It wasn't really a big studio. It was um, someone, I think he became uh, Dolly Parton's mandolin player or the Dixie Chicks or something like that. But it was a musician who had his own, uh, you know, home studio, basically. Okay. It was oh. the first time I ever recorded on Pro Tools, too. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and uh, but you... they had beautiful microphones and mic pre's, and so it all sounded nice. Right. Yeah, it seems to have a bit of a, bit of a, a Nashville thing to it uh and and i guess with him being from here and you probably used all nashville players i guess on something like that yeah totally um but when you talk about recording acoustic i did have the background with laswell of recording all kinds of world music which is basically acoustic but you know very strange instruments so i've recorded like you know saws and, and um you know oud and and a lot of um you know off the wall world yeah. music and world and music instruments you you did the master musicians of jajuka record too right yes uh was that with bill or was that no that was bill yeah that was a situation of where i got thrown in where i didn't think i was ready i was originally um uh he asked me to go there to morocco it was done as a field recording in morocco and i was yeah. asked to go there to assist a guy named billy yodelman who was kind of a bit of a legendary west coast engineer um he had been with Mick Fleetwood on Mick Fleetwood's trip to Africa in the 70s. Yeah. And um, uh, anyway, so for some reason, Billy Yodelman uh, opted out. And um, so I was bumped up to being the, the main engineer. And was Laswell there producing the record? Well, it wasn't really producing. I mean, it is producing, but, you know, yes, he was there. He, he organized uh-huh. the whole thing. And, and what was that session like? Well, I mean, it's totally uh, one of a kind. I mean, we, yeah. were, um, we were in the, I don't remember the name of the mountains, the Rift Mountains, I think. Uh-huh. And, and it's a place that they don't, at that time, there wasn't any road there. And, and so you would drive to where you know, you would have to go there with a guide and they would say, stop here. And you're just like in the middle of nowhere. And then it turns out there's like a a mule um, path up to their village. And so all the equipment was loaded onto a cart that was pulled by this massive tractor. And then we all rode up on mules. And um, so we got there. So we we got there one evening and, um, you know, we decided to set up the equipment. There was also a film crew there, so we had like lots of bright lights, and that uh, we set up, and um, and you know they're like, well, we're set up, and you know, let's just try some recording, and you know, so they ended up starting, you know, playing, and it turned out, you know, that became the first session. We ended up working till like till dawn. Uh huh. Was it basically just setting up room mics? in that situation or were you did you have a bunch of gear that you were had had access to no i I brought a full portable recording setup at that time um this was before adad and and all that um the there was this it was one of the very first digital recorders called an akai atom Uh and um actually akai might not be it it was called an atom just a two track 
No, it was 12 tracks. Oh, okay. So, so it was multi-track, and then I had a, a portable Soundcraft board, and um, so all the mics would plug into the board, and it would feed out through an insert into the input of the Atom. And so it was multi-track. It was all outdoors. It was in like a kind of a courtyard. Um, oh, so that's I, recorded you know, outside. Okay. The- yeah, it was recorded outside. I had, you know, I had to use windscreens and all that. And um, yeah. And how were you listening back to the takes and stuff? Just on headphones? Um, through headphones. And then also I had a, a very uh, portable uh, pair of monitor, of powered monitors. That's a, that's a unique session. It's an amazing yeah, it sounding was- record. Yeah, no, they had no electricity there. We had to um, bring up really? a generator also. Oh, my God. So what's, um, what's happening with you these days? Are you working on any projects that are um, uh, anywhere near completion at this point, or what's on the horizon? I'm, my main focus is that I'm writing a book, and I'm oh. trying to... I found that I can't um, engineer and write at the same time. They, the days I engineer, I end up getting no writing done. So I've been um, sort of turning down a lot of work, but I'm always doing local stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and um, yeah, I have a, you know, it's all bands that you probably hadn't heard of, but there's a, a group I'm really excited about called Ma Muse, um, which is two girls and it's kind of, um, you know, folk, type of stuff and yeah. um one of those girls i'm i'm doing a solo record with her what's um, her name her name is sarah nutting and, and they're from they're from around where you live yeah yeah they lived in nevada city they just moved out to near prairie sun now and i think we'll be uh it's almost all recorded and we'll probably be mixing it at prairie sun called wild belongings by sarah nutting thanks man thanks for uh spending some time with me and telling me these stories and it's great to hear th- things like that from your perspective and, and good to hear about your, uh, your journey as well. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for asking. You're, I got to say you're a great interviewer because I was worried about that I wouldn't have anything to say, but you know, now you got me <laughs> one, you know, hard to shut up now. That's ah, good. That's how we yeah. roll around here. Oh, it's, it's great to have you, man. I, I really appreciate the, the music you've made and, and the albums you've been involved in that I've heard have all been amazing. And so it's great oh, well, to thank you. All right, super cool to talk with Mr. Oz Fritz. I'm glad you could join me today and and check out some of his stories and techniques and and everything else that comes along with a guy with such a colorful career. Uh, Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode, and we will see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. <laughs>